0: Hey everybody, Scott Lees here for another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I am joined today by my good friend Richard Harris, as usual, and we are super excited to welcome Chris Orlob from Gong to the show. Chris has recently, relatively recently, made a transition from being one of, in my opinion, the best sort of content marketers out there to running a sales team uh, as a director of sales uh, at Gong. So, Excited to talk to him today, get into some things about marketing and sales dynamic and really want to hear about his transition and how it's uh, aging him along with the rest of us who are in sales. So welcome to the show, Chris.
1: What's up, y'all? Happy to be here. Welcome to the dark side, Chris.
0: Good to see you again, man. How's things in San Francisco? You uh, made a move not too long ago, right, from Salt Lake
2: yeah, City? Sometimes it feels like it was a really long time ago. Sometimes it feels like it was just yesterday. But, yeah, I moved out to San Francisco about two and a half years ago from the motherland that is Salt Lake City, Utah. So
0: Yeah, you, you did the opposite as me. I got out of San Francisco, and you, you went there. You enjoying it?
2: I, I'm loving it. You actually had a lot of influence on me moving here. I don't, I don't know if you remember oh, that.
0: Once, once I, once I left, Chris was like, Oh, I can live. there." <laughs>
2: That's exactly where I was going with that. No, I, mean, I, I
0: remember talking to you about this. Tell, tell the story actually. Well, yeah. I
2: remember, you know, I was kind of, I was torn for probably a day and a half and then it made like a lot of sense for me to want to move my family out to the Bay area. But I remember shooting you a message specifically on LinkedIn because you know, I had two little kids. I haven't, you know, had two little kids and I was like, Hey man, I know, Uh, nothing about what it's like to raise kids in the Bay Area. Um, Salt Lake is a really great place to raise kids. So I'm kind of concerned about making that move. And you were like, the Bay Area is one of the best places you could possibly raise kids. It's just really expensive. So if you're cool with that, if your biggest concern is just you know moving your kids out there and having a good place for them to grow up, then you should definitely do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm (laughs) moving to the Bay Area. So that was pretty much the end of that discussion.
1: Now, are you in the city or are you in the birds?
2: No, I'm out in uh, Foster City. So I I remember my first year or so working for for Gong was remote in Salt Lake City. And I would fly out to Palo Alto for a week every month um, while we were back in Palo Alto back in those days. And I remember this was a point in my life where I used to proactively tell people I will never live in the Bay Area but I remember flying over this city where the uh, bay snaked through the city to like form these really cool lagoons. And there was like this beach along that city. And I looked down and there's these big letters that spell out the city name, which was foster city. And I looked down at it from the airplane and I was like, you know, I couldn't ever see myself living in the Bay area. But if I did, that seems like the first place I would check out. That seems really cool. I'm really into like, aquatic stuff the fact that the base snakes through the city looks really cool and so when gong finally asked me to move out here um that was the first place i looked and i didn't really look any further and so we're all holed up in foster city now and we love yeah. it
0: this, this is how I, this is how i know chris's roots are in marketing the 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 aerial view of foster city was great marketing ploy by the by the city government, uh, got you. Chamber of Commerce is going to be very excited to hear. Yeah, that's right, that's I'm right. <laughs> but t- so t- t- tell, tell, uh, tell everybody kind of what you do right now. You know, with gone, what your current role is, and then how the heck you got into that that role, because it, it's it's a path that is kind of the opposite of what what many people do. I know a lot of people who started off in sales and slowly are like, oh, I want to go into marketing. I actually don't. Yeah. want to sell. I'm t- very opposite.
2: Being on the hook, yeah. yeah,
0: so, so I want to tell us about
2: that. Yeah, uh, so director of sales for one of our segments over here at Gong. Um, he, here's the funny thing, though. I, I was actually a sales professional before marketing. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, my entire career in marketing, I felt like a, I was a sales professional trapped in a marketer's body. And I, I think when I was a sales professional in you know life before Gong, nobody really knew who I was. And then my job was to... What yeah. was
1: your job in sales? What were you doing?
2: So I was a regional sales manager at insidesales.com.
1: Okay. So you came up through and what, what years were that?
2: Uh, I want to say it was, it was probably early 2013 through the end of 2015. So pretty close to three years.
1: Okay.
2: Um. So I, I did sales, you know, that that's actually where my background is. That's where my initial like career passion is as sales. And then I started a company for about a year and a half, which was very similar to Gong. And it looks like that wasn't really panning out. And toward the end of you know that kind of season of life where I knew that company wasn't going to pan out, um, I'm not sure what overtook me, but I had a desire to get into marketing. Uh, and so Gong reached out to me uh, and I reached out to them and we started talking about it. And so I, I took a role leading product marketing for Gong. And so I did that tour of duty for about two and a half years. I I loved it. But I think, like I said, deep down, I was kind of a sales professional and a sales leader trapped inside a marketer's body the entire time. And I made the switch over uh, back into sales leadership for a number of reasons. So uh, here I am with uh, ever-graying hair.
1: So, but I want to go back to your product marketing, right? Because If I were, if I'm running a sales team and I looked at the product marketing that you put together and and I'm curious how much of that was, oh, these are the stories we should tell. You tell amazing while you were doing product marketing, you told it from the sales perspective, like you gave sales related mini case study data that sales professionals could use versus oftentimes where I see marketing trying to talk about the product. Yeah, talk about the product, right? Like that's that to me was is is the genius of what you were doing because when I even now, I mean, and you certainly laid the groundwork for for Gong, um, and you can tell me if there was someone before you too. That's the beauty of your data, and I think even in this entire sales enablement space, right? Um, you've really set a bar high, or Gong has set the bar high. I don't want to discredit someone who was before you of making stories are told are in the right way from the customer's point of view that helped the sales team. Um, was that by decision? Was that an org thing? Was that a Chris thing? Was that someone before you? How, where did that even, how did you guys realize it's that simple?
2: Yeah. So I I think there are a few things. When I started at Gong, I was the second US employee. And so it was kind of like us few people putting this strategy together, which by the way, formulated over time. Like we, I wish I could say we, you know, from day one, we knew exactly what we were doing, but we didn't, we tried a few things which led to a few other things and this was working and that was not working and and, and things molded themselves over time. Um, If, if I was back running product marketing and I was hiring a product marketer at any company. The number one trait I'm looking at is not like technical knowledge or product knowledge or anything like that. It is a deep, deep understanding and empathy for the audience that they're speaking to. And so I happen to be really good at product marketing to a sales audience. If you took me as a product marketer to a DevOps audience, I'm sure I would fail. Because I it
1: out, you had the DNA to figure it out. You might, it might take you a while to get better, but I give you more credit than that.
2: Okay, th- that's fair. But it would take me a long time versus. It wouldn't be as uh, natural. I came from a sales or the sales world before I got into product marketing. And the mechanics of product marketing are really not that difficult. There's some things that are more difficult than others. But if you come from, you know, specific to product marketing, if you really understand the audience and you can, quote unquote, peer into their soul, which is probably the best way I could say it and you happen to be a good writer and communicator, you've probably got it made. And so I immediately came into this role where like I had stories. I, I had been an account executive and for a short time a, a sales manager and I knew what the pain felt like. I, I had woken or had, I had awakened at three in the morning multiple times uh, throughout my sales career, behind on quota, waking up in a cold sweat, not knowing what to do. And so now I, know how to, I, I knew how to speak to that type of pain And wrap it up in a story that 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 resonates and speaks to that type of pain. So it it was kind of easy to be honest.
1: What do you see what mistakes do you see product marketers making these days? Like do you see them doing what you've been doing, or were you doing did you figure out to do what they were doing? Or do you still see product marketing like too focused on the product and the marketing?
2: I, I mean I mean the problem with product marketing is exactly what you said. And the problem with it is the word product is in their job title. And so they automatically think I should be talking about the product where it's just like sales, honestly, product marketing is almost like sales, but at a one-to-many level instead of one-to-one. Any like professional salesperson knows not to lead the sales process by talking about the process or the product. You start with discovery, you start with pain, you start with building impact and implications. Uh, You start by telling a story about that pain and then you eventually... End with the product rather than leading with it. Product marketing is the exact same way. You've got to create demand on a one-to-many scale, and the way to do that is starting with pain or the audience's vision of what a better future looks like, and eventually lead them down the path of the product. But you don't start with the product.
1: Yeah, you have to. T- you have to tell a story.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: I, you know, I, I noticed a lot, uh, a lot more recently. Um, folks early in their career at Gong being really active on LinkedIn (laughs) and I've been thinking to myself and this is just me giving you credit, like this has got to be Chris's influence. Like I'm seeing these people tell stories in a way that reminds me, um, you know, of how you operated while you, in my opinion, have not been as active. So I wonder, I wonder if you a are teaching some of your, you know, junior kind of sales crew, some of the, the right ways to tell stories and engage and build an audience and that kind of thing. And, and that's been helpful for you to get your sales team to perform. And if now that you're in sales leadership, you're finding it harder to find the spare moments to, to post things yourself.
2: Yeah, um, so I, I, I've noticed that. We, we have a DNA at Gong that really values social media and social media awareness and thought leadership and that kind of thing. And we never really, like, did anything proactive to make that happen. I think the reason it did happen is because, like, the early people at Gong, as well as our leadership team, value social presence. Amit, like, my, my, you know, Amit Bendov, the CEO of Gong, um, my first year at Gong, uh, you know, back in 2016... Um, The goal he gave me was uh, it it had to do with social media and like owning the social media voice. And you don't see many CEOs like delivering that kind of objective to their marketing team. And that tells you the CEO values, you know, quote unquote, taking over LinkedIn in terms of share of voice. And I think you see the rest of like these younger people at Gong really starting to want to tell stories and, you know, deliver thought leadership and ask good questions on social media. I think that just stems from our value system. Leadership values that. And so people do it. You know, we lead by example and meet posts on social media, not, not super often, but he does. I post on social media, not quite as often as I, as I used to, as you pointed out, but I definitely do it. And a number of other people on our leadership do it or on our leadership team do it. So
1: just think,
2: to, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Just like of curiosity, do you give guidelines to the sales team or do you guys like, just go for it folks? You know, don't worry. You're not going to break anything.
2: You know, uh, I don't, I don't give any guidelines to the sales team. It's been, it's been a while since I've really been deep into the, the marketing meetings and trainings that are going on.
1: You run a sales team, but now you run a sales team.
2: Yeah. Well, I I don't tell them anything. You know, I, I don't tell them like you guys should go post on social media. Um, they just kind of do it. I think, I think they, uh, I think they do it because they see a self-interested reason to do it though. Like aside from emulating what we do on the leadership side, our audience at Gong is the vice president of sales. Yeah, the sales.
1: They're on LinkedIn, yeah.
2: They're on LinkedIn. So they're going to post on LinkedIn.
0: Right. Yeah. Is, there, is there ever a time when somebody is too soon in their career to be posting advice and, and, and you know telling stories in a particular way that is positioning themselves as an expert? How do you how do you how do you feel about that? And what kind of guidance, if any, do you give, you know, some of the folks who are maybe in their first year, like their it's their first year of the SDR or their first year as an AE? This is like a kind of hot topic, right? Because everybody is like all, all all in a fuss about, you know, everybody thinks they're like their two years of experience is phenomenal, and so now they're empowered to tell everybody else what to do. Yeah. Does it matter? How do you feel how do you feel about
2: that? i think it does matter like the the last person you want to be is somebody who doesn't have any experience and your point of view that you're expressing on linkedin is like really off the mark and everybody except for you knows it and so what i would recommend for like younger people if they really do want to start building up this audience is first of all post questions and facilitate discussions more than you like you know hand out advice um, the second thing is like, when do you make this transition from, you know, asking questions and facilitating discussions to offering advice and giving thought leadership? And I think the answer then there is when you have a valuable point of view that could come at age 30, that could come at age 25, that could come at age 21. If you're really ambitious, that could come at age 50. Um, the point well, is,
0: how, how does somebody know they have a valuable point of view and, and even more so that is maybe unique? And to some degree. Right. I've been thinking about this personally a lot because I've been seeing a lot of posts kind of calling out people for regurgitating the same thing and, and not and things being too similar. And I I understand it. But uh, the other part of me is like, well, you know, sometimes one plus one equals two. Right. So like there's a reason all these people who are very good at what they do are saying the same thing is because that's what fucking works. Yeah. Right. So, how, how do you know when when you have something valuable to add? I think that that is something that that younger uh, people, you know, or people who are experienced in their career but are too afraid to p- post something and put something out there. How do you know when what you have is valuable?
2: You know, th- this isn't the perfect answer because the answer to the question I'm about to pose um, requires just as much judgment as what we've been talking about. But I think the kind of acid test for you know, putting quote unquote thought leadership out there is, are you creating value for your audience or are you just trying to build up your personal brand? I actually, um, and you know, this could probably be a dis- or a hot discussion topic at some other time or even now, if you guys want to talk about it, I don't advocate, uh, overly focusing on your personal brand because to me focusing on your personal brand is a little bit like overly focusing on money where, Don't get me wrong, like I want to make a lot of money in my career, but it's the byproduct of creating value. And so if you focus on creating value, money naturally follows as long as a few other things are in place. And I view the personal brand as the same thing. If you go out there with the sole intention of building your personal brand, you're probably going to say stupid stuff. You're probably going to seem really underqualified uh, compared to the things you're saying and you're probably going to come across as a little bit of narci- or a little bit narcissistic which a lot of people on linkedin frankly do come across but if you come across as my sole intent here is to create value for my audience and you look at the thing that you want to share on linkedin through that lens and you go now am, am i creating value by saying this am i legitimately creating value or am i just posting this for the sake of posting and getting likes and shares and a few extra followers i think that's probably the acid
0: test yeah that's right. good that's good advice what, what, what's been the hardest part of the transition to sales leadership for you? Well, I have a
1: question. Before you
0: do that, though, what made you transition? Why all of a sudden? Yeah, why, why, why go back to the roots and what's been the hardest part?
2: Oh, okay, let's start with the roots. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. Number one is if you get to know me really well, which I wouldn't wish that upon anybody because I'm a very disturbed individual. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will find out that I'm probably the single most goal oriented person like on the planet to a fault. Like I can't go on a vacation without Have your
1: wife on um, the pod. Like we've been talking about, we should bring our wives on. You
2: should totally she, yeah, she she would. We're, yes. married to people like us. It, it would just be a Chris bashing session. Um, she, she would have a lot to say about that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, like, I'm goal oriented to a fault, and when you get into marketing, don't get me wrong, you have goals, but they're always a, somehow tied to somebody else's goals, and you don't really, you don't really own the goal. Like, you don't get, you know, you hear this debate happening, like all marketing should be tied to revenue, and I think it should. But f- coming from a guy who's really goal oriented, I hate being the guy or the gal who's supporting the revenue goal, but doesn't like own that number. Yeah, you, a,
0: don't have, you don't have as much control over it as you do. Exactly.
2: exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so as masochistic as this sounds, I wanted my head on the chopping block again. I wanted to be owning the number. So that's like the first. Without
0: one. without actually <laughs> completely controlling it, which is what sales leadership is, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. You, you own it. You don't necessarily control it. Right. Um, the second thing is. I think one of my deepest uh, professional passions is people leadership and that opportunity exists in marketing, but it exists uh, tenfold compared to marketing in sales. If you think about like the typical salesperson, uh, they're dreamers, like you don't get into sales unless you're a dreamer most of the time. So they have like these big visions for themselves and they're like tremendous obstacles and heartbreak and hurdles that are going to be thrown along their path in getting to that professional vision because selling is really hard. And so to be an effective sales leader like first and foremost you have to be really really good at leadership and I wanted to get back into that. I wanted to be a leader, I wanted to develop myself as a leader and I wanted to you know when when I you know pass away one day and you know they're having my funeral Frankly, I want a lot of people who worked with me to show up to my funeral because they're like, that guy made an impact on my career. Uh, yeah. Yeah, more than that, he made an impact on my life, though. And I felt like I could do that in, in a sales capacity more so than a marketing capacity.
0: Yeah, that's such a common thread amongst amongst leaders. Um, we've We've had a lot of folks on the show and there's a consistent theme. I mean, when you were just speaking right there, you like—I felt like you pulled some of the words out of my my mouth. I've said those exact things before. Um, <clears throat> so pe- people who are listening, you know, should rewind the tape and listen again to what what Chris just said right there, because that's really what
1: it's all about. Yeah. Got your rewind the tape. You're aging yourself, buddy. Come on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a metaphor, Richard. It's a metaphor.
1: They won't, they won't understand it. That's what I'm saying. Well, they, they whatever. <laughs> <Three months gone. laughs> hey, Chris, where, where did this come from? Where did this, um, like as a kid where, you know, we talked to so many people, myself included, you know, I started selling candy at grammar school kind of shit, you yeah. know,
2: like,
1: you know, what, where did all this come from? And Chris, uh,
2: I, I have a few places to go. So bear with me. Uh, when I was four years old, my family moved to a house, uh, which my parents still live in, uh, in a little place called Stansbury park, Utah. And that house happened to be at the end of the 17th hole uh, or at the end of the fairway of the 17th hole of a golf course. And so because of that, we would get a ton of golf balls hit into our fenced yard that the golfers could not retrieve because they, you know, they would have to jump the fence. It would just be this whole thing. And so we would probably, <clears throat> we would probably collect around 200 golf balls per summer, uh, maybe more. And I would sell them back to the golfers, <laughs> uh, not to the same golfers who I hit it I into played the
1: on courses like that. I think it's hilarious. So. I,
0: I think it would be an even funnier story if he literally held the golf ball <laughs> ransom.
1: That's what I was the thinking. The like, person out there waiting for it all
2: day. It. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, balls, I mean, 25 cents. Yeah. Uh, that's not how it went down. I, I wish I could say that because that would be hilarious. But that's like the first thing I ever sold, um, you know, quote unquote sold. My, my dad encouraged me to do that and he helped me out. And I would make like you know five bucks on a Saturday, and I was like, "Oh man, we're going to get a banana split at Baskin Robbins down the street for sure tonight." Um, if you fast forward to like high school, I was totally different. My my career ambition was to be uh, Neil Pert, who you know if you don't know Neil who if you don't know who Neil Pert is, he recently passed away, world's greatest drummer, arguably the world's greatest drummer of a band called Rush. Uh, I wanted to be the best drummer in the world. And if I look back on my life at that time and you asked me about it, I would say that's the only thing I cared about. Here's what's hilarious, though. I, a couple years ago, I went back to my parents' house and I went to the you know basement where my drum set is. And I found this piece of paper taped to the wall, which was a list of goals. Wow. And of the goals were what you would expect. They're like, become the best drummer in the world, own 10 cars because I'm super rich, because I'm such a great drummer, Uh, tour through the United States. But there were a few goals on there that 16 year old Chris set that I had no idea I even set. One of them was master the art of selling. One of them was master the art of marketing. And one of them was become a successful entrepreneur. And you know, I, I was looking back at that. and I'm like, I had no idea I even had these ambitions when I was in high school. So
1: you still have that? Did you take it with you?
2: I uh, no, it's still it's still sitting in, in Utah in that you basement. I don't like
1: that story, dude. Well I you're doing love
0: you're, to hear that story. You're yeah. doing pretty good on some of those goals, Chris. I don't know about the world's best drummer part though.
2: <laughs> yeah, that that one I uh, I've officially given up on.
0: Fun, so. fun fact about Neil Pert that I'm gonna assume you know, you know, despite being the best drummer in the world, arguably, that he took lessons, drumming lessons into his sixties.
2: You I know that? Did not know that No, I've been a little too disconnected from that world for a it's, little,
0: long. it's amazing. It's amazing to, uh, amazing to think about somebody who's, you know, at the top of their game, arguably the best in the world or one of the best all time. And here he is paying somebody else to teach him whatever stylistic things that he was trying to learn, just still trying to find a way to get better. You know, amazing. wild true story. Amazing. true
1: story.
0: Richard knows who, who Rush is. I would hope. Yeah, he's nodding. He's nodding. His head. I'm all about Tom Sawyer. I got some construction in the background, so I'm staying on He's mute. Nodding his head. So, so, you, so, Chris, you talked about how you would be in favor of marketing owning a number, and th- and this this topic is coming up more and more. And uh, can you can you give us your perspective on on why that should be the case in your opinion, and and how can How can we make that the norm? What do we need to do as a industry to bring about change so that becomes normalized?
2: You know, I I can answer the first question, I think, fully. The second question I think is going to be tougher for me to answer because I've never really been in a company where, um, you know, it wasn't the norm. So I don't know what these other companies are doing if they're like, you know, being comped on like some soft. Measurement of brand recognition I think
0: almost nobody's doing it. So I'm sort of I'm yeah. envisioning a, a Dystopian future where we can figure it out
2: I uh, so so here is my perspective marketing and sales are not all that different They they both serve the same purpose, which is to get keep and grow customers One does it from a one-to-many platform and one does it from a one-to-one or one-to-few platform and so if you think about it, like with that philosophy, it's about customer acquisition, it's about customer retention, and it's about customer expansion, and we're all working toward those same things as a team, then of course they should be comped more or less the same. Of course they should be measured more or less the same. Um, I think the bigger question is like, how did we even get to this point where people are not really believing that or thinking that? Because if if you think back to like the 80s, um, I wasn't even alive in the eighties, but I've, i read a lot of books from the eighties. Uh, you think about like tech marketing from like the giants at Intel and some of those other like big B2B tech firms where, you know, marketing was a big thing. They all talk about revenue. They all talk about acquiring customers. They don't talk about, you know, anything like super fluffy. The fluffiest thing they talk about is owning the position of leadership in the mind of the customer. And that's not fluffy. It's just really difficult to measure. And so I think the question is, yes, like how do we get to this point where we're tied to revenue? Um, Another question I would have though is how did we get away from uh, what marketing's purpose originally was to what it is today, which who knows what it is today, according to some people.
1: Yeah. So I love that quote, owning the position of leadership in the mind of the customer. Yeah. You know, so I was alive in the '80s, right? Yeah, you um, were in your prime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was. <laughs> uh, but but you're right. Like that's when Apple really came out with that that first Super Bowl commercial, right? Um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Master Lock. You know, they used to they used to have a lock sitting there, and they would shoot a bullet through it, right? And they would show that the lock was still there. And they only ran one ad a year. They ran it one time. They ran it during the Super Bowl. That was it, that was their only ad. And that sent us in of how powerful that block is and that, that, that today still brings true to a lot of people, uh, for those who remember it. I don't know that you could get away with a bullet these days in, a, in an ad, probably chastised uh, for it, but, but I really, I really, that really resonated with me and I think that's really critical for whether you're in marketing or sales or leadership. Owning the position of leadership in the mind of the customer that's the goal of, that's the goal of marketing and sales at those. Yeah.
0: Trainings these days. I've been thinking a lot about virtual training and, um, you know, one-on-one and small group and large group and SKOs and all this kind of, kind of stuff. Um, I know what I feel like is the most powerful type. I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious what you feel is is the best way to go about training to get the biggest kind of return, make the biggest impact yeah and and, and how are you, how are you involving coaching and training in your everyday management of your sales team?
2: yeah, uh, I have a lot to say about that. so the first thing is I'll delineate my own definitions of coaching versus training. Um, training to me is about like imparting knowledge and skills that are not currently there or reinforcing something that you've recently imparted. It's about like delivering the, the tools, the, the knowledge, the skill sets in the first place. Coaching to me is very different. I think a lot of people uh, equate coaching to like giving advice or giving feedback. And I think that's one element of it. But I also believe if your coaching session, like if your one-on-one coaching session with a salesperson starts with, here's what you should do, you're not coaching. You're being too directive. You're not facilitating a self-discovery conversation. And to me, that's what coaching is, is they're equipped with like enough knowledge to start solving these problems on their self or start solving these problems themselves. And so coaching to me, for the most part, there's other aspects of it, but for the most part, as a coach, your job is to ask questions to your reps that get them to think, get them to think differently about the problems they're running into, Uh, get them to think differently about the opportunities that are in front of them, get them to think differently about their mindset and how they're deploying techniques and customer facing conversations. Because, the biggest trap when it comes to sales coaching is giving your reps the answer every single time. They come to you with a deal problem, you tell them what to do. They come to you with a churn problem, you tell them what to do. They come to you with any sort of problem that you know deep down they're already equipped to solve and you tell them what to do. And what you do or what you're doing when you when you do that is you make them dependent on you. Right. And you can't scale dependency. So, Forcing people to answer questions and come up with their own solutions, I think, is the essence of great coaching. Um, so it sounds like there are probably a few ways we could go with this conversation. I'll just stop right there and I'll let you redirect me before I go down. What's
0: the, what's the, what's the bec- best mechanism for you? Is it, is it, do you feel like one-on-one is the best way to do that or the only way? Or can you do that in smaller groups and, and in larger groups? So, no?
2: Yeah, I've got a number of thoughts there. So the first one is uh, creating a coaching rhythm and that's like the weekly one-on-one. Now the weekly one-on-one coaching session is different than other types of coaching sessions, which I'll, I have a very different philosophy about. Uh, the weekly one-on-one coaching session is the reps agenda. And so we at Gong, we actually have a Google form that reps are required to fill out before these sessions. It's like, what topic do you want to address today? Why did you choose that topic? Um, What are you struggling with? Do you have a link to a call recording that really represents what we're going to be discussing today? And so now you get into this coaching conversation and you as a manager, you as a leader are leading the discussion around the topic that they brought you to. You'll be baffled at some of the topics that reps bring you to. So that's like the rep dictated agenda. There's also manager dictated coaching And that has less to do with like a formal time for coaching. And it's more about integrating coaching into everything else you do with your people. So as managers, as sales managers, we all do deal reviews. We all do pipeline reviews. Each of those types of things can serve two purposes, but we only do one of them typically. The two purposes they serve are the business management side of it, which is what we all do by staying up to date on our pipeline. But the second thing is they all represent great coaching opportunities. If you're doing a deal review or a pipeline review with a rep, you can do both things. You can get up to speed on their business and where the risks are in their pipeline, but also have a coaching conversation about some of these deals and ask questions about these deals that force your reps to to think differently about them. So that's for the most part how I think about the one-on-one development conversation. There's other thoughts I have about like one-to-one. I want to know
0: I'm fixated on on your comment about you wouldn't believe some of the questions that people ask Give give me give me some of the give me a unique example or two of Of the questions that the some of your reps have or a funny story of of one
2: Yeah, I I don't know if I have any funny stories But i'll give you an example of one that like you you would never uh initiate as a coach yourself one of my reps um, put as the topic I want to talk about how I can leave a lasting legacy at gone. It's almost like a personal branding conversation, but internally at the company. And when I started having the coaching conversation and unpacking why that person chose to prioritize that topic, it came down to they felt like they did not work well with their colleagues to the point where they were creating like a bad taste in people's mouths and cross-functionally people didn't respect them or talk well about them. And he felt he was just kind of, he was really like eroding his relationships and when you start to peel back the onion on some of these topics at first it seems like why are we even thinking about this like we've got numbers to hit why are we thinking about like what kind of legacy you want to leave at Gong? um it turns out though like if we didn't address that that person's performance would have been greatly limited because as sales professionals we're reliant on other people in the company supporting us and if he had gone doing the behaviors that he continued to do when it came to interacting with his colleagues, it's like an e-break on his performance. So that, that's probably the most unique example of one that um, was initiated by a rep.
1: That's really cool. It's interesting that legacy thing came up because we, we did an episode yesterday on legacy. Just Scott and I, you know, given you know, the tragedy of Kobe Bryant, uh, the comeback for Roger Federer, uh, I don't know if you're a tennis sports guy, uh, the Super Bowl coming up, and, you know, oftentimes we think of legacy in terms of sports and, and those kinds of things. But it does matter. And I love the fact that you have someone who's concerned about it because it, it, earlier in my career, I, I never cared about my legacy. I cared about my number. I cared about hitting it. But I didn't think about what it meant. I think I looked at it. I didn't look at it as legacy. I looked at it as how do I get promoted? Right, And I think if you take that bigger view and that bigger lens, um, it can provide deeper value to the individual right, and provide deeper value to the organization. Because here's this person wanting to improve relationships at one level, improve relationships with you and upper management, because he knows that if, if he's seen as a difficult person, it's going to be hard for that person to get, I don't know if it's a him or he or she, uh, it's going to be hard for them to get promoted. And they're doing it from a, a a place of meaning in the heart, so I'm I'm impressed by that, uh, which is really really good. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I want I want to shift gears. Two gears I want to go to. Um, the first one is, is on a personal level. The second is on on where you see the you know where do you see the 20s taking us in sales and sales leadership and stuff like that. But the, the first question is on um, mental health or mental well being. I've had some conversations with folks in your HR department. And you know me, like I'm, I'm really big on mental health and I see mental health like physical health. You go through exercises to take care of yourself and that mental health is different than mental illness. But I know Gong is really at the forefront of a lot of companies I talk to, um, to support people um, in those in those ways. Um, you know, what's been your experience with that at Gong and, and having to do that? And, you know, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. How do you take care of yourself? and mentally.
2: Uh, I I don't know how qualified I am to answer that one because I feel like I struggle with it. Like I, but that's I, why you're qualified.
1: I, you're <laughs> like that's the part we need to stop acknowledging is like we're not experts at this. None of us are. Uh,
2: yeah, I. Um, it's it's
1: a constant work in progress.
2: Yeah, I, I'll tell you a story, and like th- this is a, an illustration of like why I'm so loyal to Gong as an organization. There was a time it, it was probably. 15 months ago or so where I talked to Amit. I had like a one-on-one with him. Amit is our CEO just for everybody listening and I like opened up to him about like how burnt out I was and I was like look man, uh, Gong is like as close to a place in my heart professionally as it can get. I've been in this category since it was an idea in somebody's mind and I really don't want to Like leave this story before it's finished. But I am like totally burnt out right now, and I don't know what to do. And this was his answer. I didn't take him up on it, but this was his answer. He goes, "Take a month off, paid." And I was like, I was kind of like blown back. Like, are are you serious? Like, that's you know kind of substantial. Um, But the fact that like he prioritized that, uh, like, I was already super loyal to Gong. It like doubled my level of loyalty in that moment. And so. That's just, a, I think, a a good story to illustrate, you know, leaders these days, I think, are starting to become more cognizant of these issues and being more supportive of their people. Um, As far as how to deal with mental health, I think one of the concepts that comes to mind is it almost has like a religious connotation, but the idea of rest and like what does rest actually mean? Because I think a lot of us misinterpret what will lead to rest for ourselves so like an example is you just work like a 60 or 80 hour week. And most people think, all right, I've got to rest now. And they, the next thing they do is they go binge on Netflix for eight hours. And what they don't realize is by the end of that eight hours, they're more exhausted uh, than at the beginning of the eight hours. And so I think a lot of people equate rest to just a lack of activity or like passiveness and I think the real answer and I don't have a great answer here I'm still thinking through this stuff for you know my own benefit but it's like what what actually restores your energy not just like what puts you in a passive mode or a non-active mode but what like rejuvenates your spirit for like lack of a better word is it going to the ocean to like take in this like the enormity of uh you know what the earth actually represents. Is it playing with your kids and seeing them like swing on a swing? Is it reading an inspirational book that puts your head and heart in the right place? So I struggle a lot with, you know, on and off like burnout and overwork and that kind of thing. Um, I haven't found the best solution, but the, the topic that comes to mind lately to best address it is the concept of rest and making sure we're not misinterpreting rest. Not just, you know, it's not doing something passive or inactive, although sometimes it could be, but it's doing something that actually restores your energy.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Like I, I focus on that a lot. Um, you know, the word is meditation, right. Um, and I, and I've been doing it, I I think I just crossed 4,600 minutes of meditation and I only do it 10 minutes a day. And sometimes it's sometimes, you know, I've used headspace to do it and, um, I was talking to some friends about it and there are are days where like your meditation isn't as quite as much as what you like, but so you kind of have to realize that the fact that you're trying to take time to think about nothing is the value. And that does provide a a substantial amount of rest for the mind. And, and it's a lot like going for a long drive. That's where your creativity comes from because you, you effort, you make an effort to stop thinking, even though those two things, don't agree. And sometimes I have to remember that, Oh my God, I don't feel like meditating. I'm not going to meditate. My mind's going crazy. And it takes me till about the sixth minute in the session to finally kind of have my deepest exhale. Um, so, you know, if you're struggling with it, um, that I found that to work for me, I don't know if it'll work for you, but it, it doesn't require going anywhere. Like this is, you can do this, you know, 10 minutes you can find, right. Like, and they even have like five minute sessions. So it's, I'd encourage you to try it if you haven't, but, um, for, thank you for doing that. I know I know Gong, we won't spend all the time on it today, but I know Gong has um, also internal policies and, and efforts that they make so that if people are feeling stressed, they know how to go to ta- somebody, when to go to somebody. It's very open and, and I credit Amit and whoever else on the board or whoever else in leadership said, we got to make this a priority. So uh, it's a priority for me for personal reasons, but I love it and, and I appreciate you sharing that story. Let's Let's 2020, twenty what do you see us in 2030 right um you know what's gone going to even do like are you just going to say oh you're talking to richard harris follow these words exactly like don't deviate like is that how good it's going to be
2: no no i don't i don't think it's going to be anything like that i think it's um it's a little bit different of a direction where it's like if you think about what Gong does, like most people who have a surface level understanding of Gong think, think it's like call recording with like some, you know, search functionality. Um, the reality is, though, it's not just about calls. It's like every type of conversation is being pulled into a deal timeline. It's calls, it's, it's face-to-face meetings in some cases, it's emails. Eventually, it'll be like web chat and any type of customer conversation you have. Um, so at the risk of sounding like it's going to replace CRM or compete with CRM, that's not my intention, but your intention, but it's almost going to be like another CRM where like, if you're a sales manager and you want to know what the hell is going on in your pipeline, you can do one of two things. You can go into Salesforce and see all the opportunities and see how out of date they are. Is this stage right? See maybe 10 words worth of notes to get, you know, the picture. And then go drill your reps for 30 minutes and ask them 20 questions to actually get the reality of what's going on.
0: What do you, what do you, what do you say to the salesperson or sales manager or VP of sales who's out there right now going, Oh, sweet. I got to check two platforms to see what the fuck is going on.
2: Um, I, I would you know they're
0: out there. I might be one of them.
2: So, so let me close the loop and I'll, and I'll address that. The, the alternative to doing what I just explained is you can look at your deals in Gong and see like how much conversation velocity there is, are people replying to your emails and what was actually said. When you want to understand what's going on in your pipeline, you log into that platform and you don't have to log into the other one at all. That's not to say you don't need the other platform, though, because it has data that fuels the first one. So my personal belief, which I don't expect anybody on this podcast to believe, nor do I I ask them to, is that Gong will be like the front-end interface that people log into, um, both sales managers and salespeople to manage their business. It's not going to replace CRM, but CRM will be like a back-end database that people don't really log into anymore. You still need it there because... You know, it gives you like a lot of deal information, like a and stage and that kind of stuff.
1: I see that now. I see I, Salesforce is nothing more than a big data warehouse. Yeah. Right? Um, reps reps are living in email, Gong, you know, the sales loss, the outreaches of the world. That's where the rep spends their day, right? Could yep. be, and then you just need the machines to connect, so the reps don't have to go into Salesforce and figure
2: it out, right? Like that.
1: Speaking of machines, Chris, when will machines replace
2: salespeople? Uh, I, I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, I think a salesperson is not a salesperson is not a salesperson. So I think the, the, the right question is what type of salespeople will machines replace? And I think it's, it's salespeople, not because of lack of skill, but just the nature of their role, who do not deliver value during the sales process. And I want to make a distinction between communicating value and delivering value. Delivering value is helping people think through their problems. It's delivering unique insights to their situation. It's facilitating a buying process. If your sales role is nothing more than just communicating about your product, like benefits, features, advantages, that's probably going to go away. That's where I would place my money. You know, but isn't
0: isn't there isn't there a Westworld type situation where where, where the machines can duplicate and replicate? emotion and context and improvisation and things like that
2: maybe i'm not a i'm not a a a data scientist or a robotics guy roboticist is that the right word um i i don't claim to know all this stuff i just take my life you know one year at a time i try to plan what's going on in 20 years at least for me personally um I don't think I can make a prediction. I I don't think uh, robots have that capability. I know some really smart people who believe they do. I know some really smart people who believe they don't. So I guess we'll just have to see if we need to totally upgrade all of our skills in ten to fifteen years from now.
0: Hopefully, we're all retired by then.
2: Hopefully, that's the. That's <laughs> the
0: <laughs> what
1: can we do to What world, can we do we'll to be, help we'll you, be man? Be a world class drummer. It's not too late, man. You yeah. can still do it. I don't what
2: think we. I don't think the desire's there anymore. Um, I, I've thought about that a lot, where like if some you know divine being came down from the heavens and was like, "Chris, do you want to be the world's greatest drummer? I can wave this magic wand and make it happen?" I think I would say no, and I would choose something else just because my desires have changed. I want to make an impact on people. You can do that as a drummer, but it's it's in a little bit I'll of a on you.
1: I call it bullshit <laughs> <laughs> it comes out of the bottle. You're fucking taking that wish. Uh,
2: bullshit. So what can a well, telling wish to replace it? Just to be clear, I'm not just going to decline it and like my life as it is today. It is, you know, I want to be
0: now, now, now he's in sales. Oh, Richard He doesn't want to be the drummer. He wants to be the front man.
2: Exactly. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> Chris, how can we, how can we help you, man? We always try to give back a little bit and, and ask our guests, what can we do to support you? And, and your growth and things that you're up to
2: you know n- nothing comes from mind i would just ask the both of you to continue sharing your wisdom and knowledge and insights on you know linkedin and other places where a lot of people can be exposed to it and you know i think that in a small way and in some ways a big way can make the world a better place so i don't have any asks except for that
0: all right well if you do you know where you know where to find us man always good That's to see you and enjoyed the conversation
2: keep yeah out the good,
1: keep up the good work bud
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Always. Anytime, man. Good to catch up with you and let us know how we can help you too. So, Sounds great. Catch you later.